from the State Archives of North Carolina. Connecting the Docs, a podcast connecting archival materials to fascinating true stories from around the Old North State. Hello and welcome to Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel. Today we bring you the second episode of The Murder of Nail Cropsey in our series, Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem, where archival documents connect us to a crime, a misstep, or something mystifying in North Carolina's past. To give you a short recap of the first episode, 19-year-old Nell Cropsey goes missing on the night of November 20th, 1901. Her body is found 37 days later on December 27th. It's floating in the Pasquotank River, a river that flows in front of the Cropsey house. The report of the physicians that performed the autopsy stated that Miss Cropsey met her death through a blow to the head and being drowned in the river. Join us now for episode two of The Murder of Nell Cropsey, Charges and Trials. I have with me in the studio archivists Debbie Blake and Chris Meekins. Hello Hi. again. Hello. To start off this episode, there's a newspaper article appearing in the Morning Post, and this is a Raleigh paper in uh, December 1929. I'm going to read it here. Public sentiment is strong against Wilcox now that the coroner's jury has decided that Miss Cropsey met her death by foul means and no stock is taken in the story of suicide. All point to the fact that Wilcox was with a girl when she was last seen alive five weeks ago. This fact is the only real evidence at hand to connect Wilcox with the crime. So after her body's found, her family is really deeply grieving, as is the family of James Wilcox. I mean, his family is upset, too, because I believe the father and um, the father of Wilcox were friends. Jim, though, was more circumspect. He really didn't show a lot of emotion, and the public didn't like that. Yeah, according to the testimony of Police Chief W.C. Dawson, Wilcox was actually arrested twice on the morning after Nell Cropsey's disappearance. And the third time he was arrested was on December 3rd, 1901, when he appeared at that point before five magistrates. But this was before... The body had been found. That is, Correct. That was before the body was found. And he was held under a $1,000 bond, and they had a hearing which lasted for about four hours. And they subpoenaed a lot of witnesses for this particular um, hearing, but only four of them were actually ever called to testify. And they were W.H. Cropsey, Miss Olive Cropsey, Alexander Brown, and Fanny Mitchell. Now, the last two testified that they saw Wilcox enter his father's house about midnight. And Dawson also reported that he had awakened the man from sleep in order to take him back to the Cropsey's house after she'd been reported missing. So much of the discussion within the hearing was based on how long it should have taken James Wilcox to walk from the Cropsey house to his own house and the amount of time that it actually took him. And I find this a little odd because I don't know that I go the same way home every single time I go home. There are often factors that impede me from going the same way I would normally go. And I'm fairly certain that it doesn't take me the same amount of time to get home, probably in ballpark, but not exactly. Well, you live in a big city. You don't live in the little city. And Elizabeth City in 1901, there was one road that led from 
Nell's house to Jim's. And that was then River Road. It's called Riverside Road now. We have a map of that. If you check our blog post, we'll have a map up and show you that route. It is an inordinate amount of time that they're trying to establish how much time he may have had to commit a crime along the path of that road home. So the, the, this initial questioning is focusing just on his time and how much time he could have... His time and when people saw him. There was also a quote in there about uh, they had awakened him from sleep. Is that not... That's right. Yeah. That's right. There was. So there was a quote about awakened and, and related to that. Later, Wilcox states, as quoted in the Wilmington Messenger of December 29th, that he was a sound sleeper and explained that even his mom would wake him up and she'd have to do so repeatedly to get him ready for the day. On December 12th, 1901, Chris has alluded to this one time before, W.H. Cropsey, the father of the missing girl, issued a letter in the newspaper publicly charging James Wilcox with responsibility for his daughter's disappearance. And the next day, Wilcox replied with a letter of his own in the newspaper denying all responsibility. I'm going to read extensively from this letter because it is the statement that we really have from James Wilcox. And this is the only time we really hear anything from from Jim Wilcox. Yeah, it's his main statement that we have any access to. That's right. And I'm quoting, I have had nothing whatever to do directly or indirectly with the young lady's disappearance and know nothing of her whereabouts. Neither do I know how she disappeared. The last time I saw her, she was standing on the porch, leaning against the post with her head on her arm. She was crying. The last words she said to me when I told her I had to go over to town and ask her to go inside were, you can go to town. I think the letter which has been published by Mr. Cropsey is unjust and is calculated to do me great harm. He has no evidence to justify him in making such a statement, and I am at a loss to understand why he should have signed such a statement. I held no ill will towards Miss Cropsey and would have done her no harm. Both she and the family were warm friends of mine, and I held them in the highest esteem. We have been best friends, as far as I know, for about three years. If I knew anything of her whereabouts, it would be a great pleasure to me to inform her father, mother, and friends. I deny that I am the cause of or any way responsible for her disappearance. I regret her disappearance as much as anyone else. It has been published in the newspapers. I refuse to make a statement. This is not correct. I made a statement to Mr. and Mrs. Cropsey on the morning after she was missing. And afterward, I asked for an interview and again went to the house and talked the matter over with them. When I was first arraigned, there was no evidence to hold me, and I was sworn and made a statement to the mayor and four justices of the peace. I was asked about the matter fully and did not hesitate to answer any questions. James Wilcox. Now, Cropsey's letter, the letter that came out first, really did not mince any words. He said, and quoting, I shall always believe that James Wilcox is instrumental in my daughter's disappearance. And if she is dead, I believe that his hand or the hand of his hireling is responsible for her death. And of course, 
as you might imagine, Jim Wilcox's father comes out swinging, and he's a former sheriff of the county and so is very well thought of in the community. And he defended his son, as you might expect, by saying, Jim has told all he knows, and he would go to hell before telling anything else. So these are all newspaper stories. These are reported in the newspapers. That's correct. Soon after Nell's disappearance, a committee of citizens formed, calling themselves the Citizens Committee of Five. They began assisting the efforts to find Nell. And after a funeral here, Nell Cropsey's body left Elizabeth City and headed to New York, where it would be buried in the new Utrecht Cemetery in Brooklyn after a committal service with over 500 mourners in attendance. Let's talk a little bit about this Citizens Committee. That is really scary to me, that a committee of citizens just form and decide they're going to help the police. Civic-minded people. So are they going to help the police by finding evidence against Jim or for Jim, or what is their intent? Right. They're sort of formed as an extra-legal body empowered by the citizens. They get money from the citizens to offer a reward for the find and return of Nell. With no official sanction of this committee. But no official sanction by any of the powers of the county, the sheriff, uh, justices of the peace. And in fact, at first, their investigation is wide open and they make accusations against the father. They say they've caught him in some lies, inconsistencies, I believe they called it. But it's not long before they settle in right on Jim. In March 1902, when the grand jury met, charges were officially filed on James Wilcox, and he was indicted for the murder of Ella M. Cropsey, also known as Nell. By early January 1902, threats against the prisoner Jim Wilcox had all but disappeared. He had settled down in the county jail, receiving his meals from his sister Sadie, and awaiting the next phase. Jim Wilcox went to trial on March 14th in Elizabeth City, less than three months after Nell's bodies found. The trial was very intense. Uh, the newspapers kept report; they were just vigilant on this case. They reported new theories, new evidence. They reported their own opinions and a rehashing of testimony. A Raleigh News and Observer article reports that, I'm going to quote here, Wilcox, after visiting his sweetheart frequently for three years, had a falling out, that he was the last person seen with her, that she was killed by a blow, that Wilcox's afterconduct was indicative of indifference, and that there is a 25 minute unaccounted for time between 11 and 12 o'clock on last November 20th. News and Observer also reported that the defense's case was, I'm going to quote here, the evidence is not sufficient to convict that he has been hounded by sentiment, money, influence, detectives and newspapers, and that his conduct, which has caused no such feeling, is not compatible with guilt. George Ward was prosecuting for the state, and he asked for a guilty verdict on the ground that the womanhood of North Carolina must be protected from the midnight assassin. Idlett, who was the defense attorney, pleaded for the jury to make no mistake. If Nell Cropsey's spirit could look down, she would not have them make a mistake and hang an innocent man. 
So in a summation came out in a little Elizabeth City paper, the Tar Heel, and it stated, the prisoner has had a fair trial and his lawyers have labored long and well. The jurors are good men who patiently have heard the long testimony and upon their verdict today depends the fate of Jim Wilcox. He has been tried by his God and country. Good men have heard his cause. Let us abide by the decision of the court and in no sense uphold mob violence. Let the majesty of the law be upheld. So after about 30 hours of talking together, the jury renders its verdict, murder in the first degree, and the judge pronounced the sentence of death on James Wilcox. This is another case much like Frankie, our first case we had, where we wonder about the fairness of the trial just because of all the vehemence expressed against Wilcox in the newspapers. Oh, yeah. And we must remember, it sounds a little little odd, the defense of womanhood. Just a few years earlier in 1898, it caused a riot in Wilmington at the suggestion of preserving white womanhood and overthrew the government of North Carolina. Uh, so we're just a few years removed from that. So that's probably why that phrase is in the newspaper. And then there's all sorts of, I would say, unfair things. The Committee of Five, almost any exception to any coverage in the newspaper that placed the citizenship in bad light was called into question. Like if there was questions about a lynching or a possible lynching, they're like, we're the good citizens of the state. Were people talking about subterfuge because they were so against Jim Wilcox, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, there were tricks that they had coordinated in the trial, leaving the courtroom during the defense's uh, summation of the trial. They set up for the fire alarm to be rung so that the people would be you know, disoriented by that. So among other things that they did to intimidate, they basically intimidated the jury, suggesting that people wouldn't support their businesses and would no longer come and uh, support their dry goods places or whatever business they were running if there was not a verdict of murder in the first degree, which would have carried the death sentence. They could see no other verdict. So the Naval Reserves had dissuaged them from lynching, and now they were going to try a publicly authorized lynching and have a trial and ensure an outcome. And they pulled tactic after tactic to do that. In March 1902, the verdict was appealed on the grounds that Wilcox had not received a fair trial. The defense contended that these demonstrations, the threats of boycotts against jurors, if they didn't return a guilty verdict, that the watching of the jurors by citizens and other general intimidation tactics had unduly influenced the jury to find the defendant guilty of the first-degree murder. In August 1902, the Supreme Court of North Carolina heard the appeal, and in October, the justices granted a new trial on the grounds that Wilcox did not receive a fair one the first time. So when this comes out, it's announced that Jim Wilcox is going to get a new trial. Within days of that, an anonymously pinned threat was tacked to the county jail wall. And it said, get Jim Wilcox out of this jail by Saturday night if you don't want trouble. And it signed Wokes Populi, which means the voice of the people. This is just like really strange that this would occur at this time. You would have thought this was the kind of thing that might would have happened when all of the demonstrations and that kind of thing were going on, but it happens now. My question is, is this note written to protect Jim Wilcox or is it intended to intimidate Jim Wilcox? It seems more a threat. 
to me. They had Wilcox where they wanted him. They got the verdict they wanted. And then suddenly he's appealing it to the Supreme Court to overturn that verdict. That didn't set well with them. It could be either, but I tend to read it in that light. When I look at this, when I look at the trial documents, it's very difficult for me to see how in this world anybody could receive a fair trial when in the midst of a trial, you've got fire alarms going off. You have citizens getting up out of the courtroom and walking out en masse of the courtroom. All of this kind of shenanigans that were going on during the trial. And of course, that's what they appealed it on is that you really can't. I mean, you're not allowed to do that in court today. You can't walk out when the court's in session. You have to wait until they've ended a session or on a break to leave the room. So the defense asked for and received a change of venue, but the citizens of Elizabeth City felt strongly that another trial could take place there and then he would get a fair trial. But it was decided that a new trial would take place in Hertford, which is in the adjacent county of Perquimans. Governor Acock issued an order for a special term of Perquimans County Superior Court to convene on January 12, 1902 for this second trial. Let's talk about the populations, both in Perquimans and Pasquotank County. This did not sit well with the people of Elizabeth City. They had already come out in the newspaper and said, well, if you are going to have it someplace else, please don't have it in Perquimans County. We don't want it to be in Perquimans County because there are a lot of Quakers in Perquimans County, and they are very likely to be lenient on him. So they came right out and said, we don't want this trial to take place in Perquimans County. So I imagine that it did not sit very well at all when all of a sudden they find out that the trial is going to take place in Perquimans County. The other adjacent county just across the Pasquotank River would have been Camden, which they much have preferred that because in 1893, there was a lynching in Camden County, more to the justice of the matter that they wanted meted out. As time goes on, Jim Wilcox is really starting to show signs of stress now. He's been in jail for a while. And according to a Tar Heel article in August of 1902, he continued to, quote, control his tongue as he had always done. The same article said that he is stubborn. The more he is hounded, the more vicious grows his disposition and the more indifferent he becomes to his fate. And this gets mentioned over and over again, and I think it's well worth us talking about. The citizens of Elizabeth City did not like the way Jim Wilcox was reacting to this whole event. They didn't like that he was sitting indifferently in the trial. They didn't like that he didn't take part in the search for Nell. They didn't like much of anything that he was doing, but they particularly did not like his demeanor. The fact that he kept quiet. That's right, and that he would not talk. One thing that comes out in the newspapers, though, several times is how nice Jim is to all the jailers and the people that he knows, even though he's in jail. The people that he is vicious, as they say, vicious to are reporters and strangers that they allow to come into the jail and look at him. So those are the people that he is rude to and vicious with and has been very personable otherwise. In terms of his overall demeanor, though, he seems to be a very 
undemonstrative kind of person anyway. When you look at Ollie's testimony about all of the things they do as a group, he's never showing a whole lot of emotion. He's never very demonstrative. He and Nell have been going out for three years and there's no demonstrative yet. Um, so he, yeah, he doesn't seem to be the most outgoing be, person in the really crowd. Doesn't. He may have a pithy comment every now and then. You know, also he points out how could it be in his best interest to have been helping in the search had he accidentally been the one that found the body they would have immediately accused of him things there and so he he kept himself out of the search so that that wouldn't happen it's not that he didn't want her found it's just he didn't want to be accused of yet something else my guess is he was also advised by his attorney and probably his father, who's a former sheriff, to be low-key and not show a lot of emotion. So he's probably following the directions that he's been given. So the second trial was held, and we're getting this information from the Tar Hill Elizabeth City newspaper, January 16th, 1903, in Perquimans County. And I quote, The change of scene in this great trial has loaned additional interest, and phenomenally large are the crowds in attendance. Seated at Abbott's elbow was the prisoner James Wilcox and his parents. It was Mrs. Wilcox's first appearance at court. She is laboring under the greatest mental anguish and scarce dares rest her eyes upon the boy for the fear of completely breaking down, end quote. Now, the News and Observer on January 21st, 1903, reported after 20 hours that the verdict had come down for murder in the second degree. And the judge, Judge Counsel, declared a sentence of 30 years in the state penitentiary. And the News and Observer summed up the case with this quote, Now that two trials have been concluded, Wilcox is sentenced to a long term in prison as a result of a strong case of circumstantial evidence made by 31 circumstances connected link by link, and almost everybody here believes him guilty. There is yet about the whole case an element of mystery which perhaps will never be solved. I think here we probably need to at least stop for just a moment and talk about circumstantial evidence. I find I wanted finally to know what circumstantial evidence actually was. In State versus Holland, um, there's a very good explanation for circumstantial evidence. Where circumstantial evidence is relied on to convict, as in the present case, the rule is that the facts established or adduced on the hearing must be of such a nature and so connected or related as to point unerringly to the defendant's guilt and exclude any other reasonable hypothesis. The facts need to be consistent with his guilt. But not only that, they must also be inconsistent with his innocence. I think that tells us a little bit about what circumstantial evidence is. The law provides for cases to be tried on the basis of circumstantial evidence. We're archivists. We're not attorneys. But even we know you really have to connect everything piece by piece in order to make a circumstantial evidence case. Um, and sometimes I wonder if many of these early trials, if they weren't all based on circumstantial evidence because they didn't have the kind of scientific proof that we ha have and, and expect 
today. Seems that, again, we're back at time as one of the big components of these 31 circumstances connected link by link. You know, Jim Wilcox, Leonard Owens, who is a man that Wilcox meets on his way home. Leroy Crawford, who leaves the Cropsey residence not long after, maybe a half hour or so after Jim does. There are other minor characters who all purportedly helped to establish this timeline. Um, but you can't help wondering, it's all about where who was when, and how long did they take to get from A to B? And the last part of that definition that Debbie read that doesn't preclude his innocence, I don't think is met by this established timeline. Poor Nell and poor Jim Wilcox, if he were innocent. Well, it really does show us that there are no winners in a case like right. this. There's, right. there's victims everywhere. Next week, we will look at our final episode of The Murder of Nell Cropsey, when we'll look at efforts to obtain a pardon for Jim Wilcox and discover what happens to some of the principal players. Connecting the Docs is a podcast created by members at the State Archives of North Carolina, Debbie Blake, Ellen Brooks, Andrea Gabriel, Donna Kelly, Randon McRae, and Chris Meekins. Thanks to our engineer, Tom Normanley. For a look at the documents we discussed in today's story about Nell Cropsey, visit our History for All the People blog at ncarchives.wordpress.com and click on Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.